everybody. Welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for tuning in. My name is Dana Trupiana, and I cover infamous gangsters every week in a true crime-like format. My show, Mob Times, comes out sometimes on Tuesday. I don't know. I'm playing with the time. Well, it is sometime on Tuesday, so here I am. If you're new here, welcome. If you've been here before, I hope you already know how much I love you guys. I love interacting with you. I love that you're a part of this family that I've built around me. And thank you so much for all the love and support you guys always show me. So how was everybody's Thanksgiving? I hope you all had an amazing time with your family and friends. But if you didn't, and some crazy shit went down, I want to hear about it. Probably my favorite part about being alive is listening to other people's drama that has absolutely nothing to do with me. So if you've got any tea going on at your family's house, spill it in the comments and let's discuss. By the time you see this, Thanksgiving will have already passed, but I'm recording this the day before Thanksgiving, and oh my god, the pressure. I'm not even really doing much this year. It's just pretty much my immediate family. There's only going to be like, I don't know, 10, 11 people here, but I'm freaking out all the same. I actually kind of like things like this, like holidays where the family comes over, because it always leads to me getting my house fully and completely done. Finally. I've been delaying decorating my house and putting all my pictures up and making it look like a home for pretty much two years now since I moved back to New York. Getting ready for Thanksgiving means I got everything up and I'm so excited and I'm so happy about it. I put curtains up, I put paintings up, I put all my stuff that I haven't had in so long and it makes me feel like I'm at my home. Like, yeah, it's awesome that it's Thanksgiving and I'm going to have a pretty house for Thanksgiving, but it's way more awesome that I get to live in a house that I feel good about after Thanksgiving. Other than that, I am really excited because Maverick's video is coming out, I think, December 2nd. I'm putting my own personalized video about Billy out figure two or three days after Maverick's comes out. So please, guys... If you have ever, ever shown any kind of love on my channel, please make sure that you come back for that episode and go wild. It's the most important video that I will ever put out. It's the reason that I made this channel in the first place. And I'm going to be dropping a lot of information that the public has never heard about. That's right, we're dropping names, faces, places, all of it. I'm probably going to get sued for putting this video out. If I'm being completely honest, I'm probably going to get sued. So even if you think you know the story, make sure you come check it out because I promise you, you're going to learn a few things that you don't know yet. So listen, guys, before I get into this episode, we do need to have a quick conversation. I know you're tired of hearing it. You hear it from every content creator on every video you watch, and you're probably like, "Ugh, shut up, move on. I get it. But I still have a rate of 82% of you guys that watch these videos and don't subscribe. Please subscribe. It really means so much to the channel when you subscribe and when you like the videos and when you comment and interact. It's a really huge deal. I'd appreciate it if you enjoy my videos that you subscribe and you try to interact on my channel if you can. And thank you so much to those of you who already do. I hope I get to talk to you guys in the comments. Thanks so much. Now that we've had that talk, let's go ahead and talk about a massive name from within the world of organized crime, Gaetano Lucchese, who sometimes went by the name Thomas, 
Tommy, Thomas Ara, Tommy Brown, or Tommy Three Finger Brown? December 1st, 1899, in Palermo, Sicily, Gaetano's father, Baldassare, made a living hauling cement, and his mother, Francesca, was a stay-at-home wife, as most early Italian women are. Back in early 1911, a significant chapter in the Lucchese's family story began. They made a life-changing decision to pack their bags and emigrate to the United States. The first home that they had was in East Harlem at 213 East 106th Street. The spot was right in the heart of Italian East Harlem, a lively and close-knit community during the early 20th century. Okay, so let's take another step in the Lucchese family's journey as they moved to 316 118th Street. Interesting notes here. So, obviously, this is way in the past. So, we're talking somewhere around the mid to early 1910s. So, the entire landscape is going to look completely different. But, 213 East 106th Street now houses a very large tenement building. It's on a main street. There's a lot of traffic on the street. I would imagine at the turn of the century when cars are just being invented, more than likely, there's probably going to be a lot of foot traffic. It seems like a street that would be lined with vendors that were selling wares and fruits and all that kind of stuff back in the day. 316 East 118th Street is a much more private street. There's a lot more individually sized homes. It's not so much like a tenement building and mass apartments and stuff. There's a lot less traffic. It's just a lot more private. It's still in the same neighborhood of East Harlem, but it just seems a lot more private and like a much more pleasant place to live. In their new home of East 106th Street and later on East 118th Street, the Lucchese family would have continued to navigate the challenges and opportunities of life in America. At this point, Tommy is a teenager and he starts working in a machine shop. He was gaining valuable knowledge and getting the inside scoop on manual labor and machinery. Back in those days, a lot of young immigrants like Tommy would often jump into the workforce early to help support their families. In 1915, things took a really tragic turn. Tommy had an industrial accident that cost him his right thumb and forefinger. Can you imagine how life-changing that must have been for a young guy? It not only affected his ability to work, but also his future prospects. And let's not forget that back then, there wasn't many workers' rights or safety regulations, so accidents like this were, sadly, all too common. This accident forced him to rethink his career and to look into opportunities that didn't require a fully functioning right hand. Little did he know, this event is going to set the stage for his future involvement in organized crime. Fast forward to the early 1930s, and the Lucchese family embarked on a new chapter of their immigrant journey. They left their old place behind, and they moved to an apartment at 118 Northern Boulevard in Corona, Queens. And as they move, we see things getting more and more and more suburban. 
Queens is actually on Long Island, and there's a lot more space than anywhere you're going to find in Manhattan, or Harlem, or any of the city. This area was often called the Little Italy of Queens, and it was a lot like East Harlem in Manhattan, with a thriving Italian-American community. Tommy's brothers, Joseph, Vincent, who was also known as Jimmy, which I don't know how, but whatever, maybe that was like his middle name, I don't know. And Anthony, who was nicknamed Nino, which means that his name was definitely Antonino or Antonio. All of them end up following him in his footsteps, diving headfirst into the world of organized crime. Family ties are a really big deal in organized crime where trust and loyalty are absolutely key and they will get you further than absolutely anything else that you can do. It's really not that hard to understand why these kids go into organized crime, especially a kid like Lucchese, who didn't really have much of a future in manual labor given his deformed hand. There's only really one of two options. Either they watch their parents work honest, backbreaking jobs and barely scrape by while the mafia guys on the street ride luxurious cars around town with blinged out clothing and insane respect and power, or they were the kid of one of those mafia guys. That's pretty much where all the mafia guys come from, and that was their experience as a kid. Lucchese was in the first bracket. His father holds cement day in and day out. That's excruciating work. Yet, the family was packed into tiny little apartments. Then, you've got the Black Hand over here, and they're all over the street, and they are straight up balling. Which way are you gonna go? After the accident, Lucchese started spending a lot more time on the streets with his friends. He and his boy from the block, Charlie Luciano, formed the 107th Street Gang because... What else is he gonna do? It's not like he can go work at a machine shop with one functioning hand... And the 107th Street Gang was no small player. They were into all sorts of illegal stuff, like theft and burglary. They robbed stores. They robbed people. They just robbed anything that wasn't bolted down to the ground. These guys weren't really just small-time crooks, either. They were experts at snatching wallets and robbing stores. And they operated under the protection of Bronx East Harlem family boss, Gaetano Tom Reyna. That name might not mean much to you, but in the world of organized crime, it's a very big name. It's a very powerful person. Being under Reyna's protection meant they had some serious backup and a lot of support in the criminal world. As Lucchese got deeper into the 107th Street Gang, his influence and reputation started to skyrocket in the criminal underworld. Connections to big bosses like Reyna open doors to more opportunities and affiliations. People know you're hooked up with one powerful guy, and you start meeting a lot more powerful guys. With his growing reputation, his parents caught wind of it and swiftly kicked him out of the house, leaving him to fend for himself. He had nobody, no family at all. By the time he hit 18 years old, Lucchese had his very own window washing company in East Harlem. Which sounds legit, right? Not quite. The business was a front for some seriously shady stuff. You see, in the world of organized crime, it's pretty common to have these seemingly legitimate businesses that served as a cover for all sorts of illegal operations. 
You hear about it all the time. Garbage companies, construction companies, casinos, laundries, mattress stores, all operated as a front in order to clean money obtained illegally through mafia rackets. It's pretty funny to picture Lucchese as a kid. Fully grown, Lucchese stood around 5'2", and he was a skinny little thing. He weighed like 105 pounds. This is exactly what I think of when I think of an Italian kid. Most of the Italian kids that I grew up with all my life, they were really short. It's weird to see a tall one, so it doesn't surprise me that dude is so small. Like, that's just the norm. I dated way more people when I was growing up that were shorter than me than taller than me. All my boyfriends I ever had were shorter than me. It's normal. I'm also freakishly tall, so I'm not really freakishly tall. I'm only 5'8", but that's pretty tall for a girl. And I hit it really early. I hit the height that I'm at now in like third grade, and I never grew again. But in all my class pictures, I'm in the back row. So yeah, I was dating kids that were shorter than me. Lucchese used his window washing business not just for cash, but to establish some serious control in his territory. If he asked you if you wanted his services and you dared to say no, you risked getting your windows smashed. That's how he showed off his growing influence. Sometimes he operated from the LaGuardia Political Club over on East 106th Street in East Harlem. These political clubs weren't just about shaking hands and kissing babies. They were hubs for all sorts of criminal activities and connections to local politicians, which added a lot of influence and protection for guys like Lucchese. Word of their venture in the 107th Street Gang got around to Joe Masseria, who recruited both Lucchese and Luciano as hitmen. Lucchese racked up somewhere around 30 bodies working for Masseria. Lucchese signed a lease in Midtown Manhattan for a company called California Dry Fruit Importers with Joe Pinzola. Soon after that, Pinzola was found dead in that same office with multiple shots to the abdomen. Lucchese was listed as a person of interest and he was arrested on suspicion of homicide, but charges were never even brought against him. There's absolutely no evidence that proves that he did it. According to Lucchese, two men barged in with guns and badges forcing Lucchese to face the wall and killing Penzola. Joseph Valachi would later testify that it was Girolamo Santuccio who ended up actually killing Penzola. But in reality, we all know that Valachi was a liar, and it was Lucchese who killed him. Come on, like, Lucchese killed that man, please. All this time, Lucchese was climbing the ranks of the Gaetano-Reina crime family. Reyna, also known as Tom Reyna, was a heavy hitter in the Bronx East Harlem family. Lucchese's top dog position in Reyna's crew showed that he was making some serious moves in the world of organized crime. With all the crime that Lucchese was pulling off, he still has a very low number of arrests and barely saw the inside of a prison cell during his entire criminal career. But let's rewind to the year 1920, when things got a bit dicey. Lucchese got himself arrested in Riverhead, Long Island for grand larceny, which means he had stolen a car, a Packard, to be exact. Now, it's not surprising that folks in the organized crime world often have a history of criminal activities like theft, because it's a crime and that's how they make money. They're all about raking in the cash. They don't care what they have to do to do it. This arrest was a big one, though, because it marked his first entry into the world of criminal records. This is his first arrest. When he was being booked, 
a police officer that was doing his fingerprints couldn't help but draw an interesting comparison. Apparently, there was a famous man that the cop compared him to. Mordecai Three Fingers Brown, the famous Major League Baseball player who had a deformed hand as well. I wonder if that helped him as a pitcher. Well, this cop noticed that Lucchese had a deformed hand as well, and he said out loud, hey, just like Three Finger Brown. And that's where Lucchese got the nickname Tommy Three Fingers Brown, because it doesn't really make sense unless you look at it versus the Mordecai comparison. Lucchese hated the nickname Three Fingers Brown. It wasn't the coolest nickname for him, especially because it highlighted his deformed hand, which he hated. But in the world of crime, everybody has these cool aliases, nicknames that are given based on your unique quirks or actions. A lot of times people don't like their nicknames, and people use them only when that person isn't around. Bugsy Siegel hated the nickname Bugs or Bugsy. Look at Carmine the Snake, Persico. It also helped that Lucchese wasn't the only one around with a deformed hand. Giuseppe Morello was often referred to as Clutch Hand because of his weird-ass hands. But Morello was almost proud of his hand. Like, you can find pictures everywhere of him sitting like this with his weird hand. Like this. In January of 1921, he got hit with another really big one. Another conviction for auto theft, which was no small crime back then. Auto theft was a big moneymaker, and often tied to organized crime networks. This conviction was a major turning point in his life and his criminal record. On March 27, 1922, he got slapped with a heavy sentence, three years and nine months in the slammer for his auto theft gig. The sentence would be carried out at the legendary Sing Sing Correctional Facility in New York. Even though that sentence sounds pretty long, Lucchese didn't end up spending that much time behind bars. He only served 13 months before he was out on parole. Parole is pretty much when they release you, but you're under a watchful eye, you still have to get drug testing, you have to get a job, it's just them watching you like crazy and you have to stick to certain rules and keep your nose clean or they can throw you back in jail. This charge was the only time that Lucchese ever got convicted, just once in his entire life, which makes sense that it would be in Riverhead on Long Island that he would finally get busted. Lucchese's release from jail in 1923 happened right when Prohibition was in full swing in the United States. Prohibition was a time when America made selling, possessing, and distributing alcohol totally illegal. And you can bet your bottom dollar that this had a huge impact on the world of organized crime and, say it with me folks, created the American Mafia. The Prohibition era was a wild period from 1920 to 1933, and it was a golden time for organized crime. Why? Because booze became illegal, and you know what that means people wanted it even more. This led to a boom in illegal alcohol operations like bootlegging, secret bars called speakeasies, and underground alcohol production such as alcohol distilleries. And guess who played a huge part in all of this? Our good old Italian-American and Jewish gangs, including some of Lucchese's pals like Charlie Luciano, Frank Costello, and Meyer Lansky. They teamed up with Arnold the Brain Rothstein, a big shot in organized crime. This guy was known for his smarts and his business savvy. Rothstein led the gang into the illegal alcohol trade, 
handling everything from smuggling to distribution and even running those cool speakeasies. Lucchese and Luciano built up a reputation for selling alcohol in high society. Masseria hated it, and he didn't want either one of them working with anybody that wasn't Italian. But he kind of let it go because of the amount of money that these guys were bringing in with their high-scale liquor sales. During this time, Lucchese was in the Morello family. I just did an episode last week about Nicola Shiro, and I talk a lot in that episode about the Morello family and how it shaped the mafia families that we all know now. Well, Lucchese's family is one of the two families spawned from the Morellos. Both the Lucchese's and the Genovese's came from the Morello family. They split at one point between those who were loyal to Morello and those who weren't. Lucchese would belong to the group led by Gaetano Reina, the group that was not loyal to Morello. So we're in the Prohibition era, and we're talking about some pretty epic partnerships between the Italian-American and Jewish gangs. These guys were like a well-oiled machine when it came to profiting from the illegal booze trade. This laid the foundation for future alliances and some major power shifts in the world of organized crime. And guess what? Lucchese's old pals, along with their connections to Arnold Rothstein, were prime examples of how organized crime could adapt to the times and milk any opportunities in the illegal market. In August of 1927, Lucchese got nabbed under the alias Thomas Ara. He was slapped with the charge of receiving stolen goods. Lucchese just waltzed through the system like a pro. He avoided any convictions and never got long stretches behind bars other than that one time. So he keeps getting arrested, but he's never even getting charged. In 1928, he got cuffed for the murder of Louis Cherisuolo, along with his brother-in-law, Joseph Joe Palisades Rosado. And this is no joke. He's getting arrested for murder charges. But guess what? Those charges were later dropped. Let's talk about those charges for a second, though. He was arrested after Louis Cherisuolo was shot to his death on June 30th, 1928, at just 24 years old, on the corner of 1st Avenue and 118th Street in Harlem. Cherisuolo's wife and daughter were present when the murder went down, and they fingered Lucchese, Joe Rosado, and John Charlie Scupete, which translates to, sorry Charlie, Gaudio. Before they could get through the trial, though, the wife and daughter retracted their statements, and all three walked away free. I'm sure that that wife and daughter just totally forgot what happened and who did it. I'm sure that there was absolutely no help in their memory being erased. But this is just the beginning. He faced three more arrests in his lifetime. One for murder in 1930, another in 1931 for some investigation thing, and then in 1935 for vagrancy. Every single time, he walked away scot-free and all charges were dropped. The Castello-Marisi War kicked off in 1931. This was kind of like the Mafia's civil war, with two heavy hitters at the center of it all, Joe Masseria and Salvatore Maranzano. As a side note, before I get into this, I really do have to apologize to all my people that watch a lot of my videos. Because you hear me tell the same story a hundred different times in a hundred different ways. But I have to treat each video like it's the first time somebody has ever seen a video of mine. So I have to tell the story all over again. So if you're sick of hearing about the Castellamarisi War, 
and Luciano's arrest and all of that stuff, I really do suggest that you go to the chapters and just skip to the next chapter because I'm really sorry, but it really does have to be restated every time I talk about it. So the Castellamarisi War was a power struggle between Masseria and his family and Maranzano and his family. It was named after Castellamare del Golfo, a little town in Sicily where a lot of these mafioso come from. Charles Lucky Luciano, who was on the rise in the mob world, saw this whole mess as a golden opportunity. He secretly made a deal with Maranzano. There's a whole lot mixed up in the middle of this, and Lucchese was one of the frontrunners in this whole debacle. As one of Luciano's best friends since childhood, he stood next to him and made decisions alongside him. So everything that happens following this is going to have Lucchese's handprints all over it. It was actually the Lucchese family that kicked off the Castellamarisi War, according to most people. It was the death of Gaetano Reina, the leader of Lucchese's family and a good friend of Salvatore Maranzano, at Joe Masseria's hands that kicked off the bloodshed. He was killed on February 26, 1920, as he left his Gumar's house in the Bronx, and he was shot by either Vito Genovese or Joseph Pinzolo. Interestingly, Gaetano Reina was the uncle of Joseph Bellacci, one of the most famous mafia rats of all time. Before Reina was killed, the family was known as the Reina Gagliano Lucchese family. Each man held considerable power both in their own family as well as with the rest of the mafia. As much as Lucchese and the family that he was in were very much the outliers, they didn't like to get in trouble, they didn't like violence or fighting or any of that, that didn't stop Maranzano, who was a member of the Shiro family at the time, from waging a full-scale war when his friend Reina was killed. It actually wasn't even Reina's family that did the fighting, it was Shiro's family. And Shiro left for Italy right before the fighting of the Castellamarisi War started, and Maranzano ended up taking over the family. In exchange for bumping off his own boss, Joe Masseria, Luciano would get to take over Masseria's rackets. He also became the boss of Masseria's family, and he had the right to be the right-hand man of Maranzano, who was going to hold the Capu di Tutti copy position once Masseria was dead, because Masseria was currently holding it. And that just means the boss of bosses. Luciano never actually met with Maranzano to negotiate this ceasefire of the Castellamarisi War. He instead sent his friend Lucchese to negotiate with Maranzano, and get him to agree to the terms if Luciano took care of business on his side. On April 15, 1931, Joe Masseria, the current Capu di Tutti Capi, got the surprise of his life. He was assassinated at a restaurant in Coney Island, Brooklyn. With Masseria out of the picture, Salvatore Maranzano took the stage. He became the top dog in the American Mafia, and he had some pretty big ideas. He basically restructured the entire Mafia, making it super hierarchical. I talked in the Shiro video about how the five families had existed long before the Castellamarisi War, but Maranzano just made it official. Before this, there was pretty much five big gangs in New York. Now, there were officially five families, and no more could be added. They were recognized as members of this government that he was putting together. Obviously, he sat at the very top of this hierarchy as the boss of bosses. Maranzano became his own problem soon enough. He was slowly starting to realize that Luciano was more of a threat than an asset. 
He had boots on the ground. The entire mafia idolized him much more than they idolized Maranzano himself. And if Luciano decided to kill Maranzano, he would have no problem at all taking leadership over. So Maranzano decided that Luciano had to go. He hired Vincent Mad Dog Call to take out Luciano, but there was something that he didn't know. The entire time the Castellamarisi War was waging, there was actually an underlying group within the two warring factions, the Young Turks. The Young Turks was a group of gangsters that had either been born in America or had come to America as a young kid and grown up in America, and they had the ideology of an American. They hated the older generation, or the mustache peats. They hated that the mustache peats didn't want to work with people of other races, ethnicities, or genders. They viewed that standpoint as a serious roadblock in their way of making any kind of real money. The Young Turks was made up of the younger dudes in the entire mafia. It didn't matter what side of the Castello Marisi war you were on. Guys that went to war during the day met together and schemed at night. The Young Turks was made up of guys like Frank Costello, Vito Genovese, Albert Anastasia, Joe Adonis, Joe Bonanno, Carlo Gambino, Joe Perfacci, Tommy Gagliano, and Tommy Lucchese. So because these Young Turks existed, and because the Mustache Peets have no idea that the Young Turks existed, it made it a lot easier for the Young Turks to survive. Although Lucchese should have been fully loyal to Maranzano, given that he was working for Maranzano day in and day out, the Brotherhood of the Young Turks went far deeper than his admiration for the Capu di Tutti Capi, and Lucchese went and informed Luciano that there was a plan to have him whacked. He also had an added benefit. He worked with him all day, every day, and he knew just the way to take care of this. He knew that Maranzano was scared that an audit was coming from the IRS, so he was like, hey, why don't we just pretend we're the IRS police and go dressed as cops? He also already knew that because Maranzano had been so scared of this looming IRS arrest, none of the people in the office were armed. Super useful knowledge when you're going to bump somebody off. In order to get out in front of it, because now Luciano is finding out that there's a death order on him, Loki Luciano ordered the death of Salvatore Maranzano on September 10th, 1931. He didn't really want to take credit for the killing of Maranzano right away, so he had his Jewish buddies go take care of it. The only problem was that they hadn't ever met Maranzano, and still to this day, there is not an official picture of Maranzano. It does not exist. It did not exist. So they decided to have one person who knew Maranzano in place at the time that they were going to pull this off. Tommy Lucchese worked at Maranzano's office. So when the Jewish mafia members, who were dressed up as police officers, showed up, he pointed out exactly who Maranzano was. They proceeded to stab him a bunch of times and then shoot him in the head, leading to the only picture that has ever come out of Salvatore Maranzano, him laying in a pool of his own blood, dead. The Castello Marisi War and its wild aftermath, they completely changed the game of the American Mafia. It reshaped how organized crime worked in the United States, and it set the stage for decades of Mafia influence in all sorts of criminal enterprises. After Maranzano's demise, Luciano took Maranzano's ideas and ran with them. He wanted to bring order to some of the chaos of the American Mafia, so he came up with a genius plan. He held a conference in Chicago where everything would be laid out. At this conference, they laid out the official groundwork for the five families and split up territory amongst those families. The five families were officially laid out, and the bosses of each of those five families were officially put in place. 
The position of Kapu Dituti Kapi was officially scratched out and erased. They also established the Commission, a ruling government made up of the most important members of the five families, as well as a few other families. Al Capone was represented from Chicago, Stefano Magadino was represented from Buffalo, everything was just kind of put neatly into place. The bosses of the New York families would be Charlie Lucky Luciano, Vincent Mangano, Tommy Gagliano, Joseph Bonanno, and Joe Perfacci. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. The commission is officially in place. Tommy Lucchese was in Tommy Gagliano's family and operated as the underboss at only 32 years old. That's super young to have such a powerful position. The end of the Castellamarisi War, the formation of the commission, and everything officially being laid out with a good chunk of the mustache peats gone, brought a pretty long stretch of peace for the Mafia. When Prohibition was overturned in 1932, Lucchese moved into the kosher chicken business with his boys. One of his besties is Louis Lepke Buchalter, so it makes total sense why he would get into a Jewish industry once the sale of illegal alcohol was taken off the table. Before long, Lucchese had control of the entire kosher chicken industry. Every aspect, from the butchers, to the places that prepared the chickens, the places that sold the chickens, the trucks that transported the chicken, it was all controlled by Lucchese. He had a virtual monopoly, but he's not one of those greedy pieces of shit. He made sure everybody in his company was well taken care of, even if that meant that the kosher chicken was a lot more expensive. In 1936, Luciano was arrested and given a 25-30 to 30 year prison sentence for compulsory prostitution. Again, I really apologize, this is another one of those things that gets talked about in every single video, and I know you guys have to be tired of hearing about it. So, once again, I have chapters, skip to the next chapter if you're tired of hearing this story, and I'm sorry I have to tell it so many times. While Luciano was in prison, World War II broke out, and America needed his help. They turned to him and asked him to have the Mafia help protect American waterfronts as well as lay the path for them to go into Italy to invade Germany because they needed to go through Italy. He did that and in return for all of his help, he was let out of jail after only 10 years. But it was on the condition that he leave America and never return. Now, let's give a shout out to Tommy Gagliano. This guy stepped up big time and kept the Lucchese crime family, which used to be the Reina crime family, in line. He made sure that the family stayed on the map and kept its influence intact. But you know how the world of organized crime is, right? Things don't stay the same for long. Even though Luciano's commission idea initially brought some harmony among the Mafia families, things wouldn't stay peaceful for that long. Some families like Bonanno, Magadino, Perfacci, and Mangano joined forces. That could have thrown a curveball into the commission's power balance. This made the commission a 4v1 situation, with the poor little Lucchese singled out and on their own. Which makes me so sad. Like, they're all lonely. Everybody bullied them. How sad is that? So, what came next was a period of shakeups and power struggles. Different families were battling it out for control and influence, leading to some pretty intense conflicts. The commission was still around, trying to sort out disputes and keep things running smoothly, but its effectiveness? Eh, sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. It had its ups and downs. Tommy Gagliano had a really smart strategy. Starting in 1932, he decided to lay low and keep things hush-hush. Instead of being out in the open, he preferred to pull the strings behind the scenes. 
He had his main man, Tommy Lucchese, as his right-hand guy, being the family's public face. This low-key approach was all about dodging the prying eyes of the law. He didn't want to go to jail. If you don't see me, you can't arrest me. You know what they say, behind every great boss is a trusted underboss. And Tommy Lucchese was just that. He ran everything. Tommy Gagliano hardly had to do anything. He just made the big calls. And Lucchese was on the street, running everything on the street. Now, fast forward to 1946, and we've got Gaetano Lucchese making a star appearance at the infamous Havana Conference in Cuba. This was like the Super Bowl of the Mafia. Top mob leaders from different crime families all across America came together to chat and make decisions about everything from gambling to drug pipelines. Lucchese being there and representing his family showed how important he was, not just within the Lucchese family, but within the world of crime as well. On January 25, 1943, Gaetano Lucchese became a naturalized citizen of the United States. This may not seem like a big deal, but it's actually a pretty significant milestone. It meant that he gets all the rights and responsibilities that a U.S. citizen would, including voting and protection under U.S. law. And get this, it happened during World War II, a time when citizenship and loyalty was under intense scrutiny. So he got citizenship, and that was a one-off. A lot of regular straight and narrow people were trying to get citizenship, and they couldn't. Being a U.S. citizen gave him certain rights and protections, even while he continued his shady dealings in the criminal underworld. This move usually protects the guys from becoming casualties like Lucky Luciano and Joe Adonis, who were both forcibly emigrated to Italy and exiled from America forever. So now that he's a U.S. citizen, that's supposed to not be able to happen. Gaetano tied the knot with Catherine, and they started a family together. Yes, the big bad mobster had a softer side, too. Together, they had two kids, Francis and Baldessare Lucchese. Now, the Lucchese family originally set up shop at 104 Parsons Boulevard in Malba, Queens. If you're not familiar, Malba is a residential neighborhood with some stunning waterfront views along the East River. In 1950, they made a major move to 74 Royat Street in Lido Beach, Long Island, where they built a lavish, fully customized home for themselves. It has since been destroyed and is an empty plot of land now, and given that it was still standing in 07, but wasn't by 2012, I'm thinking it went down in Sandy. This move might have been their way of seeking a more peaceful, suburban lifestyle for their family. Get out of Queens, get out of any of the boroughs. Long Island is well known for being suburban and close enough to New York City that if you work out there, you can go out there pretty easily. But you don't have the hustle and bustle of city life every single day. Tommy Lucchese's daughter, Frances, tied the knot with none other than Tommy Gambino son of Carlo Gambino, the boss of the Gambino crime family. Talk about a power couple, man. This marriage wasn't just about love. It was about forming a significant and influential bond between the Lucchese and Gambino crime families. In the world of organized crime, much like royalty, these kind of alliances through marriage were pretty common. It strengthened relationships, created opportunities for collaboration, and solidified power within the criminal underworld. And Francis and Tommy's union deepened the ties between these two families. Carlo Gambino, by the way, was a big shot in the American Mafia. He was known for his strategic thinking and flying under the radar when it came to law enforcement. 
So when the Lucchese and Gambino crime families joined forces through this marriage, it boosted their collective influence and made them even more skilled at navigating the complex world of organized crime. And these marriages weren't even just for one generation. They often led to alliances that spanned generations, with the kids of both families continuing to work together on their criminal enterprises, and a lot of times we still see marriages going on between the families. Now, don't get it twisted, even though they were united through marriage, conflicts and rivalries were no stranger to the organized crime world. Different crime families sometimes duped it out for territories, resources, and influence, which could totally shake up the dynamics of these relationships over time. Carlo Gambino, the big boss of the Gambino family, wasn't shy about showing his generosity for this wedding. He handed over a whopping $30,000 as a gift to Tommy Lucchese on this special occasion of the wedding. These kind of generous gestures are not uncommon in the Mafia. You always see thick envelopes being handed over. It's all about strengthening alliances and showing respect and loyalty. In return for this extravagant gift, Gaetano Lucchese made a move. He offered Carlo Gambino a share of his criminal interests over at Idlewood Airport, which you probably know as John F. Kennedy Airport or JFK Airport. We're talking about a game-changing exchange of interests that gave the Lucchese and Gambino crime family a major grip on the operations of Idlewood Airport. Idlewood Airport was like a golden goose for the Mafia because it played a huge role in transportation and commerce. Gaetano Lucchese had his fingers, or what was left of them, in all sorts of pies, including airport management, security, and controlling the airport unions. And when he teamed up with Carlo Gambino through this marriage and interest exchange, they became the big bosses of airport-related rackets. It wasn't just about the airport, though. Their little friendship had a massive impact on the entire organized crime scene in New York City. These guys were calling the shots, not just at the airport, but also on the commission and all mob activities in the city. This is a huge game changer, given that not too long ago, it was a 4v1 power dynamic, and Lucchese is finally back in the swing of things. This strategic partnership was like a power-packed combo, making the Lucchese and Gambino families a force to be reckoned with in the American Mafia. Their influence wasn't limited to specific crimes. It spread like wildfire through the whole criminal network in New York City and beyond. Alright guys, normally I would try to drag this on a little bit longer, because I don't want to make it a part two, but I do have Thanksgiving tomorrow and I do have to go cook and I have a shit ton of things to do. So I really apologize, but I'm cutting this off right here and I'm going to make this a two-parter. Don't forget that my video for Billy will be coming out sometime soon and I need you guys to come through on this one. I'm not joking. I need your comments. I need your interaction. I need your shares. Please. If no other video gets love, please make sure this video gets love. Thanks so much for joining. I hope you enjoyed this video and you don't hate me too much for making it a part two. Please don't forget to like, share, subscribe, follow, comment, do all the things, and I'll see you next week. Bye!